This is hell. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. And according to our first guest this week, our future might be found in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's disturbing past. And what a creepy, creepy past it is. There's his cruelty toward teammates in college. Then there's the weird fraternizing with his high school students and jackass-like humiliation that was apparently part of his teaching style, as was his penchant for defending the South's reasons for fighting the Civil War. Add in the inhumanity he was in the midst of when working in the notorious U.S.-run prison in Fallujah during the Iraq War, then moving on to a job where he deceived Guantanamo detainees into believing he was there to help them. And the candidate for the Republican Party's nomination as the next president of the United States appears to have lived a waking nightmare while turning others' lives into nightmares of their own. But all those horrors seem to have worked to DeSantis' advantage as he has quickly moved up the Republican Party power rankings in the run-up to 2024. If DeSantis does somehow win, you can expect him to be, spoiler alert, well, expect him to implement a project based on the belief that there's no no price too high for the American way And we owe those who use brute force to secure it everything. The worst part is DeSantis is not an anomaly. He is very much the face of the 2023 Republican Party in the United States, a face that is the shadow of Trump's and is a specter of cruelty, brutality, a police state bolstered by the military and leaders with their own private armies, enforcing laws that restrict freedoms and indoctrinate the public into a false past and present. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with investigative reporter Jasper Craven, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Sunshine Imperium, The Militarism of Ron DeSantis. Jasper covers the military and veterans' issues. His writing has appeared at The Intercept, The New Republic, New York Magazine, and The New York Times. You can follow Jasper on Twitter at Jasper underscore Craven, C-R-A-V-E-N. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen with Lindsey Gorey shadowing him for the day. Uh, How was your past weekend there, Will? Uh, Can't complain, Chuck. I almost did a lot of things and did a few (laughs) things. I uh, enjoyed the little tease of spring we had Sunday, kind of let my dog take me for a walk and uh, explored the great outdoors of Rogers Park. What kind of dog do you have? uh, She's a mutt, uh, Australian cattle dog mix, uh, but then there's something else kind of fluffy in there. Yeah, my uh, sister-in-law, who would be my sister-in-law if I was married, she has an Australian uh, dog like that, uh, and just a cattle dog, and just... just has so much she has so much energy it's just out of hand not my sister-in-law but the dog has yep. a lot of energy now that she's 10 she's just starting to slow like, down learn how to chill a little bit <laughs> yeah it takes that long exactly anything else uh, i learned that ford just patented a self-repossessing car so, <laughs> really yeah <laughs> so that's neat <laughs> that would be so g- i want to see that i think it's a horrible thing I'm completely against it, but I would like to see this happen it, to actually take place in person to see somebody chasing their street down. Yeah, the, it the literally drives itself back to the mothership if you're delinquent on payments. So, <laughs> so we can't get a self-driving car, but we can get a, a self-possessing car. That's crazy. I that's can't it. wait to be hit by one. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure they recognize somebody who's using a white cane. I'm positive <laughs> of it. <laughs> 
So uh, one year ago this week, I thought I was just suffering from another episode of a chronic inflammation in my digestive tract that I'd been suffering from for almost 15 years, an issue my doctor had been advising me I dressed for a very long time, but I kept putting it off because who wants surgery, even if it's outpatient? However, I never thought I had the time to get a simple outpatient procedure as I was prioritizing the show over everything else, including my own personal health and well-being. I was warned unless I did something about it and soon, it could become very serious, which is exactly what happened a year ago this week, which led to an emergency surgery, a surgery I would later find out I had a 60-40 chance of surviving. And I would not be here if it was not for my healthcare team, which included a number of surgeons and specialists, my own personal care physician, nurses, family members, and friends. So this past weekend, I celebrated the one-year anniversary of my life-threatening ordeal by caring for a friend who had cared for me while I was in the hospital, a friend who was rushed to the very same hospital's emergency room where I was rushed a year earlier. They were forced to stay overnight for observation and a series of tests, and I'm very happy to report they were released the next day. For me, it was a weekend of not only caring for a friend who had been hospitalized in the emergency room, but... Having my PTSD triggered by being in the same ER in the exact same hospital, a hospital where a year earlier I would spend over two weeks, most of it in agonizing pain, which alternated with a haze of painkillers, many of which I admit I always wanted to try recreationally, but were far less enjoyable drugs when all you want to do is not feel anything. Suddenly I was back in that same hospital where I ate horrible food and could not eat anything, losing 20% of my body weight while in a hospital bed that was so uncomfortable I could not sleep even after being given tons of drugs that were supposed to knock me out. And it was crazy. This past weekend when I was in that hospital, one of the nurses said, oh, let me get a heated blanket for you for my friend who was the patient. Brought in the heated blanket and she said, you know, these heated blankets, they're really the best thing about this hospital. And I realized that doesn't say much about this hospital. Now that'll build confidence for you. So my weekend was one filled with fear for my friend's health, but also one of being reminded of the trauma I went through beginning exactly a year ago this week. More important than any of that, uh, Will, did I give you the hangover cure? I don't know if I did. You might have to look it up online. I apologize if I did not. Uh, It is in my trusty email inbox. But uh, I'm supposed to be asking you first. Sorry. What is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, This one's a bit uh, triggering, uh, (laughs) given being on the job market and all that. Yeah. But um, what was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? (laughs) What was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? I will say by not being caught embezzling. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can uh, at this is hell radio, or you can email it to me at chuck at this is hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell, following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of this is hell stuff the t shirt, the trucker, the winner cap, the trucker cap, the winner's cap, the coffee mug, the face covering or face mask, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring dozens of interviews from this century, as well as the tote bag. Yes, we have a freaking tote bag. And you can find all that stuff at thisishell.com when clicking on support. The good thing about the tote bag, though, is you go into a grocery store and they say, do you need any bags? And you say no. And you put up this gigantic tote bag that says This Is Hell on it. 
And it always gets some attention. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Will has this week's hangover cure. Will? All right. I will have it. Um, post haste. Post haste. <laughs> yeah. Technology. Again, apologize for no not uh, printing out the read today. Um, there we go. All right. <clears throat> this week's hangover cure is ginseng, a specific kind of ginseng that we have never suggested as a hangover cure in the past. Back in 2019, alcorehab.com ran a story headlined Natural Hangover Cures Top 10 Organic Remedies. This is the first time I ever visited the website alcorehab.com, by the way, <laughs> in case you're curious. Uh, the article states, and this is in quote, Siberian ginseng or red ginseng, uh, coincidence, I think not, um, <laughs> uh, could not have been left out of the natural herbal hangover cures. Siberian ginseng extract is able to alleviate some of the visalgia symptoms. I've been saying that wrong for decades now. How have you been uh, saying it? Because a whole bunch of people, I saw a whole bunch of different pronunciations. Uh, visalgia. Uh, okay. Mm, yeah, mm. Um uh, symptoms and they uh, also decreases the overall severity of uh, visalgia or visalgia. So what is visalgia? <laughs> now it's beginning to sound like just sounds to me. I've said it too many times. Uh, it's a fancy word for hangover. Every time I looked up visalgia, it would say, I would say how to pronounce vi visalgia. Then in parentheses, it would say the word hangover. Like that was the pronunciation guide. <laughs> I was like, well, none of those letters look the same. Uh, I love AI. Uh, <laughs> how many times did you look it up? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> Two. Okay. That's thorough. Uh, Alcorehab.com uh, concludes the root helps the body metabolize alcohol faster and soothes an upset stomach. Half a cup of Siberian ginseng tea is more than enough to fight hangover, stomach pain, fatigue, and thirst. That makes this week's hangover cure not just any ginseng, but Siberian ginseng. A tea of which can address stomach pain, fatigue, and thirst caused by too much drinking the previous night. As this is only our second show of March, we are currently booking the rest of this month's shows. After considering dozens of authors and their books to be featured here on the show and getting fantastic suggestions from you, we shared a list of 13 possibilities with our Patreon patrons because this is hell and there's no way we're going to give you 666 choices, so 13 seemed appropriate. And you can currently see that list at patreon.com slash this is hell if you are a patreon patron we also asked patrons if they had any other guest uh, ideas and if they did to share them as well and if you want to share any guest suggestions you have and you're not a patreon patron you can just send them to chuck at this is hell.com and we are going to be sure at the end of this week we will be sharing all of the potential upcoming guests with all of our audience on social media Here's some of the replies we have received so far rob h who i am forever in his debt as a few years ago Totally out of the blue and un unexpected whatsoever. Rob, after hearing me complain of my chronic lower back pain caused by an old on-the-job work accident, which when doing some horrible manual labor as a teenager that I probably shouldn't have been doing, uh, sent me the exact same office chair he uses, and while it has not cured my back pain, it has made my life a lot more painless. So thanks again, Rob. Rob writes... 
uh, after they reached out to you, I listened to Half Earth Socialism by Troy Vettis and Drew Pendergrass and thought that one or both of them would make a great guest. And Rob is correct that their book would be a great fit for the show and that they did email us back in January, an email we read on air, but it's worth repeating. So Troy wrote back in January, I'm a big fan of the show. I was wondering, might you be interested in interviewing myself or my co-author, Drew? We make the argument to take planning seriously, return to the root of the socialist calculation debate, and ditch Prometheanism. In practical terms, that means energy quotas, veganism, mass rewilding, and tools to allow everyone to participate in planning. We've made a video game where you play as a global planner. You can find it at play.com half.earth, which uh, has been uh, played by 100,000 people or so. People on Steam even made memes about the game. It's not all easy going, though, Troy writes. The New Left Review called me Pol Pot, and we had quite a heated debate with Doug Henwood on his show. So thanks again, Rob. You are not, you're not the only person who has suggested we have Troy and Drew on the show over the last year or so, and we emailed them early last year and never heard back. However, as I was out sick for nearly three months last year, there's a good chance I simply missed their response. And in case any of you are wondering, as I was, what Prometheanism is, it's an environmental orientation which perceives the Earth as a resource whose utility is determined primarily by human needs and interests and whose environmental problems are overcome through human innovation. Which I think a lot of that is what they tell you the Earth is for in the Bible. I don't know. I'm Catholic. Somebody else read it for me. We also heard from Matt T., who writes the Institute for Social Ecology, recently released a new issue of the Harbinger Journal, focusing on race, racism, and white supremacy through the lens of social ecology. I'd love to hear more of a social ecology perspective on This Is Hell, and I think this issue would be a great way to begin the dialogue. Any article from the new issue might make for a great guest, but I think from the Homestead Act to YouTube, Settler Colonialism, or Settler Colonial Continuities of the Homesteading Movement by Ryan Edgar would be interesting to hear about, or Decolonizing Nature, How Wilderness Dispossesses Indigenous People by Nathaniel Owen, I think they might prompt a good discussion. Check it all out at harbinger-journal.com. Now, that's a publication I've never heard of before, and if you have a publication you would like us to be aware of and to follow online so we can have yet another source for guest ideas, please send them to me at chuckthisishell.com, or if you are a Patreon patron, leave it in the comments to our recent post on potential guests for this month. Coming up on the show, Governor Ron DeSantis' creepy past and how it might play a role in our scary future. We will tell you what happened to on our most uh, recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Former producer Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, will be giving us a peek at the past inside the present as he provides us with the historical context from the past to have a better understanding of our present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? Uh, this week's Past Inside the Present examines the differences in approaches to nuclear weapons between the U.S. and USSR. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And the way Governor Ron DeSantis exercised the law as a lawyer before winning an elected position may not be legally criminal. 
but it is, it is immoral and unethical at best. He apparently has continued his cruel disregard for humanity as he moves up the ladder of power within the Republican Party. And yes, that cruelty includes erasing actual history with a whitewashed past that supports the South in the Civil War, including the slavery the Confederacy wanted to keep legal. That Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, as in the one who is running for the Republican Party nomination for president in 2024. Here to help us have a better understanding of Republican presidential nomination candidate Ron DeSantis is investigative reporter Jasper Craven, who wrote the Baffler article, The Sunshine Imperium, The Militarism of Ron DeSantis. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jasper. Thanks for having me. So let me read a little bit from your article right at the beginning here, because uh, you, as you report, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as a member of the Navy's Judge Advocate General in March of 2006, the month DeSantis arrived in Cuba, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Hamdan versus Rumsfeld. In that case, Salim Ahmed Hamdan, a former bodyguard and chauffeur to Osama bin Laden, argued that the military commission set up to try him and other Gitmo detainees violated both the Uniform Code of Military Justice and the Geneva Conventions in a momentous 5-3 to three decision. The court took Hamdan's side. In response, military brass rushed to defend and improve their practices. Ultimately, however, they focused more on rhetoric than redesign. DeSantis's main mission was ensuring that detainees were treated in line with applicable laws and regulations. Tom Fleener, a former defense lawyer at Gitmo, told you that Ron knew where the bodies were buried, so to speak. But all the people around him were pitching the party line. Fleener, the former Gitmo defense attorney, then ticked off his the, this doctrine's key claims it was we never grabbed innocent people these are dangerous people who've committed unspeakable acts these are enemy combatants they can't be released we didn't torture anybody all our interrogation tactics works the information gleaned was true those were the standard mantras back then fleener says all of it was false while i was just reading that quote a thought of mine thought came to mind which is was the approach at Guantanamo then that everybody who was a detainee was guilty until proven innocent? Uh, essentially, yes. I mean, you know, what's so fascinating um, here is that Ron DeSantis essentially um, began his professional life in an environment that was totally allergic that if you follow his career and um, sort of examine it through the lens of his time as a JAG at Guantanamo and then in Iraq, his current policies make total sense because, you know, Gitmo was and is a world of doublespeak. It's basically, yes, saying um, that detainees are innocent until proven guilty when in fact they are guilty until proven innocent. It's claiming that uh, torture um, didn't happen there when it clearly did. It's, um, you know, maintaining that Guantanamo is a place that keeps Americans safe when in fact all of the torture and abuse there was actually used by terrorist organizations in the Middle East as a recruiting tool. And so, you know, what I hoped to do with this piece was um, try to understand uh, Ron's role at, at at Guantanamo and and figure out how it 
um, shaped him. And I think, you know, based on what I found, it it was a profound influence on uh, where he is today. I mean, he landed there when he was just 27. So still quite an impressionable young guy. Well, you're looking into his military experience and not just military experience of being on the front lines of a war as a typical soldier, but being part of intelligence, being part of the uh, military criminal justice system which as you point out is not something that usually happens in the media we don't see somebody might be have been in the military but generally that's just taken for granted that they did a good thing i'm sure there's the different there's the anomaly i guess you could say of john Kerry's presidential run in 2004 when his military record was attacked but generally the media does not uh, do anything about criticizing or even investigating somebody's military record yet that's what you do here in this article what explains to you why the media doesn't do more of an in-depth investigation into people's military past if they're using their military past as something to gain support and rally their uh, voters? Um, it's a good, it's a great question. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a couple of explanations for the lack of scrutiny. I think one is this sort of overarching and deeply pervasive belief in America that military service automatically equals patriotism and, um, you know, selflessness and all of these sort of lofty military ideals. And so because of that, um, a political candidate's military service is just essentially seen as um, a feather in one's cap and is sort of used broadly to to sort of uh, to to bolster their uh, credentials and their credibility. Um, You know, the other thing is that I think. American military campaigns have historically um, represented some of the most grotesque, inhumane, um, brutal uh, things that the American government does. And so uh, generally, the American public and the media uh, shies away from looking those um, events dead in the eye. Uh, it's it's far easier to embrace a fiction of what the war on terror was than to really dive deep and understand um, what went on. And doing that requires humanizing the quote unquote enemy. Um, and I think that's something else that the American media doesn't really like to do. Finally, I would say that um, Many journalists today simply do not have the sourcing or understanding of how the military works. I mean, the military population has shrunk so much from uh, World War II. Most people today don't know someone who's journalists have by and large abandoned this beat and sort of don't totally understand it. I mean, obviously, it's filled with a bunch of jargon and confusing regulations and everything else. And so it's just it, it can be difficult, I think, to um, to grapple with this world, understand it and, and you know, uncover new new information. So that it just leads me to wonder about, again, the bigger picture here by your assessment. What has been the impact of the war on terror on U.S. politics generally, not just on Ron DeSantis? I mean, it seems like he had, I mean, 
you you report about how he was laughing some during some of these really cruel experiences that he was ex- seeing right in front of his eyes that he was witnessing, and but I mean I understand I don't want to talk about him individually, but in general, do you think that the war on what what impact do you think that the war on terror, this forever war, is having on U.S. politics, especially on the right and within the Republican Party? Uh, yeah, well, I think that. Um... I think that there are profound um, implications um, from the war on terror um, across American society um, and politics specifically. Uh, you know, one thing that I think has has happened is the right has used the war on terror to embrace militarism. Um, but also militancy and and violence as a political tactic. There has been and there continues to be a a narrative of fear and um, and sort of enemies uh, sort of everywhere, uh, which I think has created a lot of paranoia and has um, basically, uh, allowed for just incredible and often violent rhetoric to be passed into the mainstream. I mean, if you look um, at the past two decades um, of of Republican politics, you'll often see that um, what happens is veterans uh, are the ones who are able to basically launder the most extreme uh, policies into the mainstream because again they sort of enjoy this sheen of respectability even if it is not earned at all we're seeing that now with ron DeSantis, of course but there are many uh other uh examples um that that one can point to um i mean even you know george uh w bush sort of enjoyed this credibility as a as a former member of the national guard even though you know he basically managed to secure deferments and and never had to go into combat um but you know i think a lot of uh people on the right the most savvy sort of operators on the right understand that if they can credibly claim um the military and the cops uh, then they can really uh, ram through a politics of brutality and violence. And meanwhile, the left has sort of lost the language of of military life, of veteran life. Um, I think they are genuinely scared of being called unpatriotic or of going against the flag. And so... Um, really what has happened is that the left has failed to not only fight against unjust conflicts and war, but has also failed to define peace. There is really no um, figure on the left. Uh, I mean, maybe Bernie Sanders can qualify for this role, but you you rarely see on the left a, a vigorous uh, eloquent, passionate push for peace. There's really just sort of a an assumption of 
conflict moving forward based on a, a very flawed notion that I think stemmed out of 9-11 that we need to sort of protect America. Well, that's a frightening answer. So I'm glad you're fitting in with the theme of this as hell. I really appreciate that, Jasper. So you <laughs> you write the facts were that many innocent people were being shackled, screamed at, beaten, and sexually assaulted at Guantanamo. Some died. Others were coerced into making false confessions. Is there any evidence that DeSantis was not only aware of these practices, but was in some way linked to or involved in their facilitation? Uh, it's a great question, and it's one that I'm trying to nail down now. I mean, since this piece published, I've I've received a few new tips and potential sources that I'm trying to um, to understand. Um, what we know is Ron DeSantis touched down at Guantanamo Bay in an, in a fascinating moment at the prison. Uh, you know, the early years of the war in Iraq were basically um, were basically marked at Guantanamo by total chaos, violence, torture. Um, when DeSantis arrived, as you noted earlier in the program. Uh, he had to contend with this new Supreme Court ruling, um, which in theory was supposed to create new road, new sort of barriers and safeguards for detainees to sort of create um, some semblance of justice. Um, detainees were were to be treated in 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 accordance with the Geneva Convention and also the military justice regulations. And so what we do know is that DeSantis was essentially tasked with ensuring that detainees were treated well. Um, however, this was really more of a mirage of military accountability than anything else. Um, as Mansour Adafi, the detainee I spoke with uh, for the piece and others contend, DeSantis essentially was just there to check a box and really was not in any way interested in preventing um, deta innocent detainees from being tortured. I mean, he was there uh, also during um, a very uh, protracted and powerful hunger strike that Mansoor and others uh, participated in. They were seeking uh, trials in the United States. They were seeking, um, you know, basic legal rights. And um, and so when Sanders got there, there was a very um, intense response from the military to end that strike through force feeding. Another practice uh, which the UN has subsequently. Uh, declared to be torture. And what Mansoor told me and has told others is that DeSantis was in the room for these uh, force feeding practices, again, which according to the UN were torture, and that he not only did not intervene to stop these practices, but essentially was there um, taking in the, the brutal sight and laughing. Um, and really, you know, seemed to embrace this very toxic um, ethos that that some in Gitmo had back then, which was just to basically brutalize these people um, because in some way they represented the enemy. I think that, you know, 
it's it's such a black and white worldview that existed in Guantanamo then. And it seems as if DeSantis and some of those around him really uh, sort of took some sort of sick pleasure in in being able to brutalize what they saw as a representation of terrorism writ large. In this binary world, it seems has now he's now focused on that and framed all of his political and policy decisions based on this binary world of us against them. You point out that for Adafi, he was uh, DeSantis was supposed to be somebody who was going to be protecting their rights, according to the decision made in Hamdan versus Rumsfeld in the Supreme Court, that they, he would be helping them having better conditions. But as you point out, and Adafi tells you, he was a mirage, a mirage, an illusion, an, an act played on those who thought he would help. In DeSantis's political rhetoric and speeches, is he playing a role? And if he is, and that role seems to be very popular to you, what explains that popularity? Is he just saying what supporters want to hear and doing it well, just like he was at least for a moment with Mansur Adafi when he was pretending to help him at Gitmo. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, and you know, obviously, I don't have a uh, view into the man's mind. But what I think is very telling um, is that you know, DeSantis emerged out of these these brutal years in the military again first at Guantanamo then during the 2007 uh surge in Iraq which had its own humanitarian issues that he appeared to be complicit in um as a yes man you know there there are many brave military officers and 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 infantry um who basically spoke out when they saw the brutality of what America was doing um, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. DeSantis did not do that. He basically doubled down, um, towed the company line, obfuscated. Um, and so what I think that that demonstrates is, yes, less like a, a an overarching ideology than perhaps a sort of deep belief in American supremacy, uh, at least in sort of his very narrow version definition of what America is. Um, and and that essentially, you know, to to maintain America as a place that protects a certain subset of individuals, um, government leaders, including himself, should be deputized with total power. That basically whatever um, whatever DeSantis or whatever the military wants to do is okay because there is sort of, in his view, um, there's dirty work that needs to be done. Uh, to 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 get things right. And I think that 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 there has been a lot of dirty work that DeSantis has done to sort of fit with a vision that, you know, that 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 squares with with Republican Party orthodoxy in most ways. Um, but I think is unique with for DeSantis in that it's sort of it, it, it is extreme and sort of grounded in. In in suppression 
and anti-democratic uh, tendencies. Because again, the military is not a democracy. It is a, it is a strict hierarchy. Punishment is unfair. Justice is fleeting. I mean, this is this is the worldview that he lives in. Everything he sees is through this military lens, and so it's it's less about. Um, it's less about protecting democracy than it is sort of protecting the homeland. And as you point out, towing the party line, whether that's with the military at Guantanamo or possibly is this also the same case with the Republican Party? Is Ron DeSantis not an outlier, but an exemplar of what the Republican Party stands for today? Because this is something that happened with the run-up to the 2016 presidential campaign or presidential vote when uh, President Trump would be saying things on the road on, during his campaigns and people would be like, well, he's just saying that to rally his base. It's just the primaries. He doesn't really mean that. And that he's just an outlier within the party. He's an anomaly. He's not a ref reflection. And once we just get rid of Trump, the problem is solved. So is Ron DeSantis an outlier or is he towing the party line as an exemplar of the Republican Party? Um, I think I think that he is. Um, I think he is towing the party line. I think he. Um, I think he does exemplify the platform when you boil it down. I mean, you know, I think what's remarkable about him and what has caused some fear among liberals is that. He is blatant and blunt in in his agenda. Um, you know, there were many decades of uh, Republican leaders, you know, holding extremist beliefs, but implementing them in soft uh, half measures and through, um, you know, congressional processes and things like that. What we see now, is really the realization of extreme Republican orthodoxy through extreme means. Um, so, you know, rather than, um, you know, small sort of modest measures, DeSantis in Florida is just ramming through um, really fundamentally life-altering policies that taken in whole um, – you know, basically restrict basic freedoms um, and, uh, you know, what well, well sort of simultaneously um, uh, kneecapping democratic institutions and um, empowering DeSantis as the executive. I mean, you know, clearly there's been a lot of discussion around DeSantis' social policies, his anti- trans rhetoric and his, you know, efforts to um, take over the Florida educational system. And those are all very worrying when it comes to, you know, free speech and democracy. But there's also a number of uh, policies that when you string them together and put them in context of his military career, I think are quite troubling and aren't getting really enough play. I mean, you know, for one, he has created a new uh, election integrity unit, which is essentially just uh, crews of cops that go into black, mostly black neighborhoods and um, arrest uh, former felons who, per a uh, ballot initiative that passed, should have been given um, 
their right to vote back. Um, he has, you know, created massive incentive incentives for uh, cops to move to the state, uh, granting them, you know, five thousand dollars to come to Florida. Um, he simultaneously expanded police powers, surveillance powers uh, in the state. Um, you know, he he's basically cut uh, education, environmental programs while simultaneously pushing for a massive increase in the budget of the National Guard. I mean, he even tried, I believe, last year to revive um this World War II era Florida militia that um, is um, that 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 only he controls. He basically was upset that the National Guard is is not only a state uh, military force but also um, must answer to the president and and pushed this uh, Florida militia uh, that only he would control. Now that did not pass, thankfully, but I think. You know, if you start putting some of those things together, you can really see just what he is willing to do um, to implement Republican uh, policies. And that is to essentially completely um, do away with democracy and, and create, you know, new authoritarian structures. But, you know, you said that that process failed. He didn't get his own private army. Thank God. But you would think with those on the right claiming that they are anti-government, that they would be very much opposed to this, that he would not only be challenged as the next presidential uh, possible nominee for the Republican Party, but also being challenged within Republican conservative politics within Florida. So was that an incredibly unpopular move, even amongst the right in Florida? And it, or is he just kind of, you know not vulnerable, invulnerable to any kind of attacks on any of the policies that he's made in the past that have essentially failed. Um, I think that he uh, he is incredibly savvy. And, you know, I think the right in general is much better at the left at framing um, framing issues um, to land positively with the public. Um, so no, he has not really faced any blowback for a um, an agenda that, under very little scrutiny, completely falls apart and and is exposed to be totally hypocritical with the broad ideals that he claims to hold. I mean, DeSantis has been talking forever about freedom, and he calls Florida the new citadel to freedom. He, you know, passed the Freedom First budget in Florida. This is really the ideal that he clings to uh, the most. And yet it has not been pointed out that his freedom agenda is anti-democratic. And in fact, his entire military career was focused on unjust detention. So why are we believing a man who was locking up innocent people for years that he's actually going to provide freedom. I mean, these are the things that a, a, an emboldened left and, and a, a savvy Democratic Party would begin pointing to, um, but they have not simply because, I, I don't know, they don't have 
they, they don't have the sort of the guts to 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 take him on to to fight these big battles. We are speaking with investigative reporter Jasper Craven, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Sunshine Imperium, The Militarism of Ron DeSantis. You can follow Jasper on Twitter at Jasper underscore Craven. You write how uh, DeSantis would go on to face uh, criticism upon the publication of his 2011 history book, Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, a direct rebuke to Barack Obama's best-selling memoir. In its pages, DeSantis minimizes slavery, claiming at one point that the Constitutional Convention had, quote, nothing to do with slavery, even though the framers, many of them enslavers, debated fiercely over the practice before electing to permit it in the Constitution. Earlier this year, DeSantis extended his campaign of historical revisionism by banning an advanced placement AP, African American Studies program in Florida public schools for its supposed lack of, quote unquote, educational value. So, Jasper, one question I never hear asked about this is, what is the point of being in direct denial of a known and documented history? Why erase the history of slavery? And more important, why does that attract so many supporters, let alone voters? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, um, I think if you want to look big picture, it's, it's more, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a psychological campaign here. And, and that really entails, um, appealing to white grievance and, um, sort of basically cocooning, uh, cocooning voters into a warm world, uh, where America again can do no wrong. I think that it is, it is very it, it is a it is much easier to to launch an undemocratic and violent campaign, whether that's within America's borders or outside of them. Um, if you can convince the American public that America can do no wrong and has done no wrong, uh, you know, clearly it it feels nice to to be in Amer in an America, a, a, a fictitious America. Uh, that, you know, has always sort of stood for these big lofty ideals. And so the rhetoric that DeSantis employs helps uh, create that vision. And then once you can get buy-in from, from the public um, to really create, you know, not only um, it, it, it's sort of, it, it, it creates a, not just patriotism, but nationalism. And that sort of, that is a fuel that is very, um, that is very powerful to burn. And so I think that it's really, you know, setting setting up a white grievance, uh, a strong level of white grievance and and sort of rejection of of inconvenient truths that then can create that the, the then can fuel a really powerful nationalism in which, you know, your sort of decisions go unquestioned and they're sort of veiled in these big ideas, even though they don't actually conform to them. And it just becomes it becomes a lot easier to to simplify everything again to sort of put it in black and white 
But when it comes to that nationalism, as you point to, uh, this is very much like the nationalism that we see with the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, and his rhetoric and the success that he has had on the far right. Many people have associated and connected uh, Steve Bannon with Viktor Orban, who seems to have been some sort of advisor to Orban, as well is as in far right movements in other places like South America and throughout Europe and elsewhere. Is DeSantis a representative or uh, an example of, again, this growing far-right political movement that is very much associated with people like Steve Bannon? Is he just another part of that, not just a local movement in Florida or a national movement within the United States, but a global movement toward the far-right? Absolutely. Yes, he is. And, you know, what you see um, in... Orban's Hungary is a militarization of society. Um, really, I mean, I was doing some reading in in the Hungarian independent press while reporting this story, and you know, scholars were basically saying, "Look, what Orban is doing is taking every issue um, that comes before him and applying a a." A fix that involves the military or the, his secret police or, you know, some other form of of force. Um, and, you know, you or Orban right now is is in the midst of a massive militarization campaign. Um, you see places like Turkey um, employing similar efforts to basically defund um, the social safety net and um, you know, sort of basic domestic programs to um, increase the budget of the U.S. military. And of course, that has long been the trend here in the States. It just sort of goes unquestioned um, by both parties. And so, you know, there has long been this latent militarism in the country. It's really sort of the only thing that we're good at. It's really what the economy is fundamentally focused around is militarism. And so, um, you know, if you can't point to the the public schools being good anymore, if you can't sort of look to these other facets of life in America and feel good about them, then really all that's left is the military. And I think that uh, DeSantis has understood that um, from studying Orban and from studying others. I mean, you know, you, you can look at uh, the Bush administration as a perfect example here. Um, the Bush administration, you know, launched America into two unjust wars that um, were, you know, baldly corrupt uh, and and misinformed. And yet the benefits of those wars to Bush's political career are unquestionable. War it creates a spike in popularity. It creates often blind loyalty. And that is what any corrupt politician wants. And so I think that, you know, DeSantis is looking all over the place for um, inspiration, including, uh, you know, across American history. I mean, he's also selectively read and analyzed, um, you know, writings by the founders, uh, which he which he references in his first book. I mean, for instance, uh, the book references, um, I think it's Federalist 
47, um, in which Alexander Hamilton claimed that uh, the direction of war most peculiarly demands those qualities which distinguishes power by a single hand. So he's basically making this argument that, you know, we need a strong chief executive who can exercise power, put the troops where they need to go. And sort of that's how I view, you know, militarism. But of course, he did not grapple with any of the other writings by Hamilton and other framers um, that warned about a, a military that was too strong. In fact, you know, as part of my reporting, I found another Hamilton quote where where Hamilton warns that, quote, society that enhances the importance of the soldier proportionably degrades the condition of the citizen, which, you know, in 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 simple words means that the life of a civilian and of uh, civic society writ large degrades once military takes over that culture. And I think that that's what we have been facing for a long time in this country. And I think that is the sort of ultimate overarching mission of DeSantis should he be elected to president. Which perfectly leads us to our last question for you, Jasper. Uh, we've been speaking with investigative, Jas investigative reporter Jasper Craven, who wrote the Baffler. No, I'm going to get all of this correct sooner or later. Investigative reporter <laughs> Jasper Craven wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Sunshine Imperium, The Militarism of Ron DeSantis. Follow Jasper on Twitter, at Jasper underscore Craven. And again, as often happens in, during our conversations here on This Is How We Only Scratch the Surface of the many details that Jasper provides. And you got to check out the article. Again, The Sunshine Imperium, The Militarism of Ron DeSantis. You can find it at the Baffler's website. One last question for you, Jasper. And as we we do with all of our guests. I promise our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that seven years ago, Adafi, Monsura Adafi, who uh, DeSantis was supposedly representing, was freed. He's since written a book about his confinement and become a leading proponent of shuttering Guantanamo. Last year, after catching wind that DeSantis was a rising political star, he tweeted his hope that Ron doesn't run Florida like he did at Guantanamo. He also spread the news to a group chat composed of former detainees. One member texted in Arabic his recollection that DeSantis was, quote, with a group of the most vile officers that tortured us severely. Another in English derided DeSantis as a stink rotten a-hole and the real evil devil's Theses. This choice of words is telling as part of their uh, protest. Detainees would sometimes throw a mixture of feces, vomit, and urine at the worst prison officials, a practice known as splashing, of which Haddafi claimed DeSantis had also been on the receiving end. So whoever is in the midst of such an experience, what impact do you think that has on a person? Is there any evidence that being cruel and experiencing cruelty, being surrounded by cruelty, living in an environment of cruelty leads to the person experiencing such a nightmare to become more cruel because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of feeling for DeSantis and from, you know, everything that he seems to be suffering from, it, it seems like he maybe even have PTSD from his experience in Guantanamo. Does Guantanamo, the Navy, the war on uh, terror, do they not only incentivize towing the line? But if anyone within that law challenges that system, they lose their career. Is, De is DeSantis just the product of a system that incentivizes cruelty, and that is a system 
embedded within our military? Uh, great question. And I think the simple answer is yes. You know, I mean, I, I never served in the military, but over my five or so years covering it, I have spoken to, um, you know, hundreds of, of vets from all over the country. And, you know, fundamentally what I have discovered is that yes, the military, um, you know, it, it has many wonderful leaders who truly stick to the ideals that the military purports to represent. Um, but, you know, for that class of, of soldier, uh, many are sort of disappointed or driven mad by the fact that when they actually try to uh, impose that, the, those ideals onto the military, they are retaliated against, they are pushed out. You know, it, it is really difficult to keep your hands clean in this system. And yes, absolutely. I mean, the the system spits people out with PTSD, with military sexual trauma. It radicalizes them. I mean, I've spoken to people who, you know, came out of the military. They lost their mission. They had no idea what they were doing. They lost trust in the government because the government lied to them. Then they, you know, find QAnon or they join white supremacist groups. I mean, it is very difficult to heal the wounds that um, people experience in the military. And, you know, the Department of Veterans Affairs does a decent job and many exit the military and they're fine. Many, you know, try to end future wars and they engage in activism. I mean, it does all sorts of things to all sorts of people. But yes, fundamentally, the military um, inflicts trauma that can lead a person to very dark places. Jasper, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm looking forward to your follow-up on this writing. Uh, this is really exceptional writing, and I wish that people would do more of these kind of investigations into people's military history. If they're going to use the military on the campaign trail to try to win votes, you would think there'd be a little bit more of an investigation and scrutiny of that military record. So thank you very much for being on the show this week. Investigative reporter Jasper Craven wrote the Baffler article, The Sunshine Imperium, The Militarism of Ron DeSantis, and you can follow Jasper on Twitter at Jasper underscore Craven. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. My pleasure. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. And a real quick note to Will, we will be starting with the question from hell answers that are on Patreon. If what you just heard from Jasper Craven on the disturbing, disturbing military history of Ron DeSantis, what that means for all of us if he ever becomes president, if that freaked you out as it did me and it just that the republican party is he's not an anomaly this is what the republican party has become during our war on terror show your appreciation our forever war that just is not ending show your appreciation by becoming a supporter by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support by subscribing to our weekly special bonus this is hell pod pat podcast which streams live at 10 a.m chicago time every thursday morning this podcast shortly after at the same place patreon.com slash this is hell putting people before profits which turns out to be a horrible business model this is hell and on our most recent patreon podcast this past thursday Cognitive dissonance keeps coming up on our show over and over and over again, seemingly no matter the topic being discussed. Repeatedly, we have had guests point out, or I will interject about whatever hellish subject we're discussing, 
our individual and collective disconnect between our beliefs and our actions. Dr. Liz Theodorus, Reverend Dr. Liz Theodorus, mentioned it last week with the disconnect we must all make when it comes to living in the United States, the wealthiest nation in human history, which is in the midst of all those riches struggling with poverty and inequality crisis that keeps getting worse and is leading to a constant increase in the number of human beings who are now unhoused. Liz thinks if this continues as it is now, only getting much worse, we are heading toward what she called a spiritual death. Now, all of us may not be as Christian or religious as Liz is. I know I'm not. I mentioned earlier that I was raised Catholic, but I did the right thing, and that is leave the Catholic Church. But for the not as religious, like myself, what I think Liz is eluding to, how you can translate what her religious religious indoctrination uh, might mean for the rest of us, is that that spiritual death is an eternity of the nightmare we are already living in, one that is perpetually getting worse, thus condemning all of our future and all future generations to a hell that is even worse than the horrors we face today. Also on Patreon, in recognition of the first anniversary of the war's beginning, we are two-thirds the way through our three-week series featuring interviews with other past guests who told us the U.S.-Russia proxy war in Ukraine was inevitable and unavoidable. This past week, we continued that series by playing a 2008 interview with defense analyst Ivan Eland, who had just written the story Mixed Truth of the Russia-Georgia War, which gives some of the origin story for the current war in Ukraine. And Ivan actually testified in front of Congress during that time, as well as in 2014, and later in front of Congress about the problems with being involved in a proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. This Thursday, during our third and final week of our series of interviews on U- Ukraine that are not available anywhere else, we will be offering a 2015 talk we had with Ukrainian journalist Volodymyr Ishenko, who had reported for The Guardian that Ukraine switched rulers, but not the ruling class. That's what we're going to be playing this week. Last week, we played the interview with Ivan Eland. The week before, we played the interview with Nikolai Petro. We have a couple of interviews over at Patreon from Rain Mullerson and Paul Rogers back in 2007 and 2008, all about how everything was pointing towards a war with Russia over Ukraine. So just keep looking for this really depressing series on Patreon, but it's very informative and not everybody agrees with it. So that's something to also... (laughs) Keep in mind. But you can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts as well as a special code word only for Patreon patrons that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Dan, please, or Dan, Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Chuck, this week's question from hell is, what was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? And listeners have been uh, Why didn't we ask you this during the interview? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, didn't get around to that one. No, I didn't get around. Um, uh, Anyway, uh, listeners have been pouring their hearts out here with uh, (laughs) detailed stories. So um, Fabio L. says... Having to do the night shift at a hotel front desk after they took away the TV because it was, quote, unprofessional. This was the pre-mobile internet days. 
This was overcome by getting fired two months later. <laughs> that's, that's one way that's to a great solve it. way exactly uh, quitting firing yeah that's yeah. always a good way to solve any of your work experience problems <laughs> uh old grouch says in the navy and learned that the equipment for which i was responsible was a direct link from washington to nuclear submarines I voluntarily revoked my uh, top secret clearance on the basis that if I knew orders for nuclear war being transmitted, I would turn the equipment off. I got discharged. Once again, white privilege kept me out of prison. <laughs> wow. That's a leader. That's a strong response. <laughs> um, Braden says, giving up the majority of my waking life to a business I hated and didn't give a shit about me. I overcame it by comparing it to homelessness and finding work slightly preferable. <laughs> oh, that's bleak. That's real bleak. Uh, Sarah Kay says, I was a kitchen manager at an upscale grocery store in Highland Park, Los Angeles. Uh, throughout the first half of the pandemic, when everything was in constant flux and scary, I worked 67-hour week, 70-hour weeks on salary my fellow workers were understandably constantly in a state of high anxiety i got in trouble for standing with my co-workers and asking for more anti-gentrification slash racism measures to be put in place and i made so many goddamn chicken pot pies <laughs> every day for rich jerks that i never want to eat one again so i quit <laughs> <laughs> I hope they didn't work at Boston Market that's the first, or KFC. Uh, all right, one more. Oh, what's that? What's that, Lindsay? Lindsay said Boston Market was her first job. Oh, my God. Did you know that? No. My twins, too. We both worked there. She got me the job. Wow. That would be disturbing to watch Lindsay and her twin working at the same time at Boston Market. The, only, other, the only time they had us work together was, well, if I took someone's shift, but the only time we worked together was on Thanksgiving. And, uh, yeah, it was that's their busiest day of the year, so they needed us, and we were both on the register. It was pretty funny. People would come up and be like, you guys look alike, and there's a person in between us, and they're like, yeah, like, they're like, are you guys twins? And she'd be like, we're, tri we're triplets. <laughs> <laughs> and you had that to be thankful for. <laughs> All right, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Tomorrow, when Lindsay will be producing, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want, which we will get into the mail to you post-haste if you are the person who is determined to be the winner of this week's question from hell. But now it's time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. Today, I want to talk about something that can really ruin your day and everyone else's and uh, basically everything else, too. Today, I want to talk about nuclear war and how we got there, or rather, how we did not get there. Atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, neutron bombs, all of that fun stuff. And how the way the United States handles them may seem like it's the way everyone does and why that's actually not really the case. 
Many younger listeners will not be aware of what it was like to grow up during the Cold War when the United States and the Soviet Union each had their nuclear arsenals apparently on hair trigger aimed at each other. It's kind of wild, actually, how that was a thing. We lived with a very real chance that someone out there decided that the world should end and that would be it. But the fun thing is we're still actually living in that age. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has the doomsday clock as close to midnight, meaning the outbreak of global thermonuclear war and or, you know, like the complete devastation of the Earth, uh, as close as it's ever been. The whole quote-unquote world ending weapons on a hair trigger thing is still true today. It's just no longer quite as wildly felt. Where do nukes come from, though? The technology behind them is pretty young. In the late 1930s, some German-Jewish scientists discovered that some unstable materials could, under the right circumstances, be forced into you know, nuclear chain reactions that would give off truly ludicrous amounts of energy. And they knew that Nazi Germany was researching this because they had you know, worked at Nazi Germany research facilities until they were either forced out or you know, voluntarily fled the country. And so they decided to have Albert Einstein, uh, who was one of these people who had fled the country and was at the time teaching at Princeton, uh, to write a warning letter to FDR. And FDR heeded this warning, not wanting to leave this hypothetical monster bomb to the Nazis. And that birthed the Manhattan Project, a massive and massively secret undertaking that eventually birthed the atomic bomb. This was pretty impressive on several fronts, most of all just the timeline, uh, which went from a we think this might theoretically be possible to, well, kaboom, within only a few years and during wartime and under extreme secrecy. And this secrecy kept the bomb out of the hands of the Nazis, and for that I think we should all be probably be very grateful. But it did not keep it out of the hands of Stalin's Soviet Union. Soviet nuclear physicists noticed during the heyday of the Manhattan Project that Western researchers were no longer publishing articles on nuclear fission in scientific journals. They did, however, know with some certainty that this research was still going on in the West. And from that, they concluded correctly that the Western allies were working towards a nuclear weapon and that the Soviets had been intentionally left in the dark about this project. And this then resulted in Stalin mobilizing some pretty impressive spy networks uh, who eventually succeeded in penetrating the Manhattan Project and uh, delivered pertinent information back to the motherland. The Soviets then kick-started their own atom bomb project, which included uh, bringing aboard a gaggle of captured Nazi scientists. And before anybody gets outraged about the Soviets bringing on Nazi scientists, uh, please look up Operation Paperclip. The U.S. is by far not innocent there. I mean, come on. You know who Werner von Braun was? Uh, anyway, um, and the, then the Soviets detonated their first nuclear bomb in 1949. Bada bing and indeed bada boom. It is hard to understate the importance of nuclear weapons for us as a species and for our understanding of ourselves. As the bombs grew in size and as the horrifying side effects of radiation and fallout became clearer, people began to realize something. Human beings were in fact able to destroy the planet they lived on. 
This resulted in further realizations. If we could achieve this destruction by active intentional means, we could also achieve this by accident. And that was the birth, uh, the, 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 the birthplace, the birth hour of uh, the environmental movement and a whole series of re-evaluations of human industry and humans' impact on the world at large. Not just in regards to nukes, but in regards to environmental devastation of all kinds, really. And as the Cold War progressed, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union entered into an arms race. The bombs grew bigger. Before the advent, advent of intercontinental ballistic missiles, the United States had a fleet of atomic bombers in the air at literally all times, ready to enter Soviet airspace and set the entire country on fire. And after ICBMs became more viable, American military strategy shifted towards rockets. And today, most American nukes are mobile and impossible to detect, mounted on nuclear submarines. And now we should probably take a look at the military approaches towards these weapons. For the U.S., nuclear weapons were a separate thing, a weapon class apart, and they still are. Should the day come where the president orders nuclear war to begin, that would likely be the end of everything, or so the understanding goes. American military planners largely did not really have a strategy that went beyond, well, then we just nuke them. Um, for the Soviets, nuclear weapons were conceptually just another bomb, just a very big one. The Soviets largely integrated nuclear weapons into their military apparatus and their military planning. Should it come to war with the West, they would use nukes, but in a way uh, that they would use other weapons too. As military strategist Major General William Odom put it, the Soviets understood that no single branch of the military could win a war on its own, not even nuclear war. Nuclear weapons were a significant addition that required a lot of changes in terms of strategic thinking, but they were not to be regarded as a wonder weapon that made the rest of the military obsolete. In that, the Soviet strategists built upon experiences from the first two world wars, especially on the massive aerial bombing of Germany during the Second World War. Uh, while the Western Allies laid waste to large parts of the German infrastructure, these efforts did not stop the Nazi war industry um, without boots on the ground keeping that industry from not working. And following that thinking, the Soviet nuclear doctrine was shaped to mean that Soviet nuclear weapons would only ever be a first step, not the last. Soviet nuclear doctrine differed from Western doctrine so far as that Western militaries viewed possible nuclear war as solely a strategic endeavor, so like solely something that happens on a very, very large scale. Odom then also describes Western approaches to these weapons as mostly weapons of revenge that were used to be used defensively. The Soviet military integrated nuclear weapons on strategic, tactical, and operational levels, so throughout all considerations on a possible battlefield. The Red Army's strategic rocket forces would have used nukes in an off offensive capacity. For Soviet military strategists, nuclear war was not deemed an unwinnable end-of-the-world scenario, but simply as another, albeit large-scale war, fought with terribly destructive weapons that the rest of the Soviet military would complement. The Western approach was essentially that everything else that wasn't part of the nuclear forces no longer mattered once nukes came into play. And that being said, the Soviets also put considerable emphasis on preventing nuclear war. Even though they had the groundwork laid for their armies to fight using them, they clearly preferred that, not, uh, that use not coming to pass. What is the relevance of this information for today? How is this the past inside the present? Well, we, as in the West, 
are currently involved in an armed conflict with a nuclear with a nuclear superpower. And a mistake many commenters and analysts make is to assume that Putin's Russia regards nukes in the same way that the West does. Modern-day Russia nuclear doctrine evolved out of Soviet doctrine. The Western approach is still much more geared towards uh, nuclear forces ending the world and therefore not being in much uh, and therefore not being in much need of for incorporating them into the rest of the military strategizing. American nuclear forces are still to this day on a hair trigger. That's why the president is being followed by a guy carrying around the quote-unquote nuclear football. The American president can always and unilaterally decide that the world should now end within the next half hour. The signal to launch uh, is then given to ICBM silos, bombers, and submarines, which are basically ready at any time to unleash Armageddon. In theory, this would happen as a reaction to another aggressor launching their arsenal first, but the president does not really need to give any sort of justification for, uh, justification for this, which it's not great. The Russian doctrine is different there, and Russian nuclear forces today are not on a similar hair trigger, but then the Russians just don't ha don't just have submarines but also quite a quite large arsenal of mobile intercontinental intercontinental ballistic missile launcher erectors stop giggling on trucks which are are not as easily taken out as are immobile silos will putin use nukes though and that from what i can tell and from what uh, various people who know more about these things than i do say remains fairly unlikely because using nukes if russia used nukes that would mean a massive escalation and one that russia would probably not survive regardless of how well integrated nuclear weapons are into the russian military and regardless of how well the russian military can operate under nuclear conditions using nuclear weapons would have not just military consequences if russia was the first belligerent to use nukes in the field they would be even more potentially uh, politically ostracized than they already are they might receive retaliatory nuclear strikes too and besides using these things in a war for territory you wish to conquer is of limited value because of the whole radiation thing Ukraine does not have a military that presents vulnerabilities to nukes either. Their forces are too spread out, generally speaking. The only utility nukes would have in this scenario is just to set Ukrainian cities ablaze. So it's just extremely unlikely to happen. The Russians are also unlikely to randomly drop nukes on the United States, again, for so many reasons, but most of all, just because their doctrine towards the damn things is that you use them only if you can follow through with other branches of the military. And all Republican Red Dawn fantasies aside, that the Russians or anyone else really tries to physically invade America is vanishingly unlikely. They can't even properly invade Ukraine. So this might be hell, but at least that hellish thing will in all, all likelihood pass us by. This is not the media. This is hell. Sebastian, thank you very much. I really appreciate that because I do know how the Reagan administration thoroughly exaggerated the amount of nuclear weapons that uh, were in the Soviets' arsenal. There was a book that came out shortly after the wall came down where they would have a document on one side where it would show the press release from the Reagan administration and then the uh, document on the right side from the Soviet Union saying internal documents saying that that was completely false. So I really appreciate it. But right now I'm up against the clock. So, Sebastian, be good. Uh, never. <laughs> Will, I'll try to. Will, who is our next guest here this week on This Is Hell? Our next guest is Ariane Chabelle uh, Diapolonia. Uh, 
That's good. Is, is the author of uh, Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society. Oh, man, people are going to hate this interview. Ariane is a professor at the School of Public Affairs and Administration and the Division for Global Affairs at Rutgers University, Newark, and teaches the sciences Po Paris. She is the author and editor of many books, including Frontiers of Fear, Immigration, and Insecurity in the United States. And we still do not have our final guest for this week confirmed. If there's someone you would like to hear on Wednesday's show or a topic you would like to hear discussed, email me at chuckatthisishell.com and we will see if we can get your guest suggestion on the show or someone to speak about your recommended topic. Uh, we do have a few articles that I'm going to be sharing with staff to determine which one uh, they might be the most interested in having on the show, especially Dan, as he will be producing Wednesday's show. Also coming up later this week, we'll have This Week in Rotten History. We'll reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we will be announcing this week's winner for, of the question from hell and, expl- and telling you who our guests are for next week, some of which we have already confirmed. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing his very first show. Thanks for Lindsay. Thanks to Lindsay uh, Gorey for assisting. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for the past Inside the Present. Most of all, thanks for listening. Look around. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.